we created this podcast as the Adult Leadership Advisory Board or ALAB. Who we are in terms of ALAB is a group that focuses on issues, challenges, and difficult topics facing our community. We are working hard to develop educational programming, social tools, and fundraising initiatives to inform, include, and support adults with cystinosis, but ultimately anybody in our community, our friends, our families, our neighbors, and anybody that that might or might not be affected by cystinosis. We, as the Adult Leadership Advisory Board, are funded and work under the Cystinosis Research Network. For those of you out there who might not necessarily understand or know what cystinosis is, cystinosis is characterized by the accumulation of the amino acid or one of the amino acids, cysteine, within the cells. When the cysteine builds up in the cells, it often forms crystals and will sometimes attack certain organs and tissues, predominantly the kidneys, but also includes the eyes, muscles, thyroid, brain, pancreas, and testes. Previously, it was known that an individual born with cystinosis would not live past 10. It's pretty grim, and I'm sure many families out there were quite devastated when they had a newborn who was diagnosed with this disease, cystinosis. However, today we have members in our community living well past 50 years old. This is Sarah, and welcome to the second part to our third episode of Journey into the Unknown, where we will be chatting with a panel of adults on their experiences of transitioning from youth to adult care in the medical system. Let's first introduce my co-hosts, Jana, Steve, and Cheryl. Hello. Hello. Hey. We have gathered questions on this topic of transitioning for the panel to respond to share and to share their stories. I would like to introduce our panel, Ashley, Joe, and and uh, now we will start right into the questions we have for the panel. What were the experiences or challenges when transitioning from a youth to adult care? And either of you can just jump in. Okay. Um, for me, it was quite straightforward, really. I went to, um, I don't know if you've heard about it, it's called Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. It's probably one of the most famous children's hospitals in the kind of the world. So going from that kind of environment to, I think it was about 17, I switched to another hospital. And for me, I was there and then suddenly I jumped to another place and it was a whole new world. It felt totally different. So I don't know how Ashley dealt with that, but... Yeah, I feel like for cystinosis patients, especially if you're going to school, you have to have a really good understanding of your medicine quite early on. And I think most cystinosis patients like do really well with medicine, but it's when you usually leave for college or you move out of your parents where you just don't get the reminders that yeah. you hate, but you kind of also need sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, just going from really having that, you know, that like support that probably lives with you and having a nurse at school that also reminds you and then going to a situation where nobody reminds you and you just have to kind of know can be kind of overwhelming yeah it's funny you say that i never um, had a nurse that kind of reminded me what to do totally a lot different here but yeah i just I kind of deal with it myself with my parents but, uh, yeah so it was, it was a lot different 
Yeah, and I think there's so many little nuances and, like, intricacies of, like, the pharmacy that a lot of times you just don't deal with until you have to pick up your medicine. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I think there's, a, like, a lot of, like, you don't know what you don't know until you're in that situation of being your sole responsibility for your medicine, which can be a lot. It is, yeah. 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 And I mean, there's so much to our, our illness, right? I mean, there's, there's medication routines and there's appointments and there's just like kind of even just like food reminders, like dietary restrictions. So, I mean, there's so, there's so much. It's interesting because, Joe, yeah, like you're now moving different buildings or potentially different departments in the hospital. And then that's a big change. And then, yeah, like you're saying, Ashley, you don't have those reminders. You don't know what you don't know. Like, <laughs> there's so much to it. Yeah. Yeah. These are some good points. I was still living with my parents when I was in my transition mode from like, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18. So, I mean, I guess I was lucky in that sense, but it was like moving out to a different province when I was like early 20s. And then, yeah, you're thrown into, okay, how is this covered? Okay. What pharmacy do I go to? Okay. Oh, there's different pharmacies? Okay. What are the side effects of this? And like just so much. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, big change. I realized, I think it was a big transition when I moved because I had always had kind of the same team of doctors. So to go from that to like going into a place that I had no understanding, I had to really start from scratch was kind of overwhelming as well. So especially if you move for the first time, I didn't move outside of my hometown until I was like 25 or so, but that can definitely be a big step. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was still, I'm still in my hometown now. So <laughs> I've still not kind of moved on from that in that respect, but it was even more difficult for me because Going from the children's hospital to the adult hospital was the same time that I had my kidney transplant done. So it was this whole kind of new world on me suddenly. And then also having to deal with the fact that I had a kidney transplant on the way as well. And it was a really hard one to process. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So another question for the panel is who helped you with transitioning from youth to adult? Hmm. Yeah, like who stands out kind of in terms of maybe best advice or support or guidance matter who they were yeah who essentially was your mentor that helped guide you through the process i'm in a really good situation because i actually have an older sister that has cystinosis and which yeah is like a super super rare thing and she's always been really good about taking medicine about owning everything and really just taking responsibility and i think just seeing that has really been helpful because it was a really good like motivation i feel like if my sister had not taken it so seriously i probably wouldn't have either so yeah, I look at it and I'm very grateful to have that kind of example. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's absolutely amazing to have that kind of mentor in, right in, in your life, your immediate family. That's yeah. A, a definitely, I think, kind of unique experience, especially someone who's responsible like that. So you can kind of look to her, right? Yeah, because sometimes I feel myself almost complaining but it's hard to complain to somebody who has the same situation. <laughs> it's not different, you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it's great to have that. Yeah. What about you, Joe? Just the nurses and the doctors, really, um, because unlike Ashley, I don't have anyone around me, especially as a kid that had cystinosis too. Obviously, I never had social media, so there was no kind of way of keeping contact with people. So I was kind of on my own, and I was the first experience I had with this. So I couldn't compare it to anything. So it, it was just normal for the doctors and nurses to tell me what's what, who's who, what rules to follow, what not to do. So they were kind of the people that got me through it. And obviously the lead to the kind of growing up, 
you have to take more responsibility by yourself. So it was a weird one. Yeah. Completely independent. Yeah. yeah. Almost like you're your own guinea pig almost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I just have a kind of a question in terms of your sister being your mentor and someone who also has cystinosis. Do you ever remember a time where there was a moment where she really helped you with something that you might have been struggling with? Like a kind of a, not necessarily a defining moment, but a specific moment in time. Um, I know this is on the spot. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, well, she went, we were both during a time on dialysis, to, like during the same time, but she started earlier. And I think just her attitude towards it was really good because I think you can have a defeatist attitude when you go into something like that very easily. It's very easy to do. And she never had that mentality. So I think just kind of seeing her go through it and be strong, although vulnerable, was kind of helpful when I went into dialysis because I had somebody that I saw kind of happen to them. Yeah, right. Well, that's amazing. Like, that's good inspiration for yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't, I don't there's probably like a lot of controversy, but you, you know, there's, that's a temporary thing and you've got to be very like, optimistic every day about it. Not to have like fake optimism, which is a whole thing, yeah. but, you know. For sure. Yeah. It's like kind of trying to find those positives, like those real positives. In and amongst the challenges of dialysis. Yeah, for sure. I do have a question for Kevin. In what ways do you deal with dialysis and the trying to think of ways for thinking positively during this time? I think for me, I just try to think past it because there's no way around the fact that it's terrible. So I don't know about inspirational stuff for dialysis, because to me, dialysis is just one of those things you have to do a surgery that's awful or taking medication. I don't know if I have words of wisdom for that. It's another mountain to climb, and I've climbed a lot of mountains to get through this, and that's uh, particularly a bit on dialysis now. Uh, for context so it's never fun right now i go to a dialysis center and that's a whole other thing because where i live there's no dialysis centers that don't also treat covid19 patients so it's always scary to go in i'm always the youngest person by 30 years at least it's not a social thing for me anyway it's just i put my headphones on i listen to a podcast i listen to some music and i just power through it like i'm jogging up a hill basically mm-hmm. and it's interesting you say that because i was always the youngest by far when i was on dialysis in the hospital as well right. and it's sort of like yeah okay so this is an interesting feeling i'm 30 and everyone else is 60 or and it can be hard to find the positives i think one of the main things i guess that i took away from it and i had my certainly bad days and thinking well like this is crappy (laughs) was that i still have two people on my facebook account who are nurses there because i mean the nurses were whether male or female were more around my age like 30 40. Um, the nurses so yeah. are always the best part about any hospital any dialysis anything yeah. always like doctors are doctors they're aloof they come in and <laughs> yeah sometimes come in 10 at a time and go here's what's wrong with you you might die bye and then the <laughs> nurses come in and go Okay, so let's unpack that. Here's some anti-anxiety medication, because I know you're going to want it. They're the most real people, no matter what medical situation you're going to. Like right now, most of the people I think in my local dialysis clinic that I go to are Filipino women. Mm-hmm. Don't know why, but they make it doable because they laugh and they joke and they have a good time. They're decked to the nines in PPE gear now. They can barely like, this is like, too, but they're a positive. They're just nice people. <laughs> 
Yeah, our heroes these days, nurses. But if you have good support in the hospital, that definitely helps in terms of nurses and yeah, doctor. <laughs> Sometimes good doctors will. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts to add, Ashley or Joe? <laughs> no, thoughts I can think of. No. What professional resources or services did you use during your transition? And this is just a general question. So. I'm just wondering what resources you use, professional resources you use to help you transition from youth to adult medical. I don't know that I am even now transitioned. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's a, that's the kind of the thing is this, this idea of transitioning into adulthood. I didn't do that when I was 18. At least I don't think so. I didn't do that when I was 24. You know, I'm still transitioning into adulthood. (laughs) So I guess right now I use a therapist. I guess I use, um, my university to find a job, things like that, that I still use and will always use. It's just a matter of knowing what I needed and (laughs) spending like, I don't know, I'm 35 now, I'm almost, I'm going to be 36 this month. So whenever I should have started transitioning until now is an ongoing process for me. So every service I've used since I was like 17, (laughs) I would say is in service to that kind of thing. Uh, what about you, Joe or Ashley? Do you have any feedback on that question? Well, I, I've never really had any services like that. I can't really add much to the question, really, because I just went straight from A to B. I didn't really... Um, so I'm getting therapy now, but at the time, I just went from one to the other, like just like that. I didn't get any help or anything. Whether that's the testament for the NHS, I don't know, but... <laughs> I can't really add much to that because I didn't really get any professional help. Just the support from the nurses and the doctors were what really made it possible, really. Yeah, I I can't really add too much to that, I feel like. Looking back, I wish I had more help in terms of like maybe having a therapist because now I do, but it would have been nice to have it back then. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And thank you uh, thank you for being so honest and open because I think it's becoming more and more common and more in discussions in terms of therapy. But I certainly am with you, Ashley. Like uh, when I was younger, I didn't have the sort of knowledge or know-how to sort of to, to understand how much talk therapy can help and how much therapy can help. But boy, oh boy, like in my late 20s and 30s, it got me through a lot and not even just with cystinosis. Kevin, you bring up, you know, employment and uh, many other issues as you're not only just trying transitioning in the medical area or industry, but also like in the medical system, but also you're now looking at careers and actually you've brought up moving away from home and living on your own. But it's uh, definitely a part of a real conversation in terms of therapy and maybe having more conversations with, with youth will really help open their eyes because we, sounds like a lot of us didn't have that when we were much younger. So thank you for that. Yeah, I think me and Jana lucked out because we, you know, we're twins with cystinosis. So we both were going through the exact same thing at practically the exact same time. So we always had someone to talk to when we were younger. But when I got older, I actually, you know, my 20s, and I had to, you know, do a therapist because, you know, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's too much to deal with. And it's nice to have someone to talk to who's going through the same thing as you. But I also wanted coping tools to kind of get through those tough moments. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, and also when you're transitioning, right and you're kind of getting into adulthood you don't have the grandparents or the parents or the siblings or whoever it is necessarily by you the whole time as you're getting older and transitioning and Kevin like you say never really ends 
it's difficult to sort of feel like you're on your own. And sometimes in the past too, I didn't have these Facebook groups and these chats and I didn't really know anybody else really, maybe one or two people from afar who had cystinosis. So it's definitely difficult. And I mean, if we can spread the word to younger generations that it's okay to talk, it's okay to get help. That's huge. Mentally, there's a lot. And when you're taking things on on your own and you're transitioning into adulthood, it's a lot. So I appreciate this conversation. One thing that's helped me is having a series of resources that I can go to others. So my doctors or my sister-in-law's really good with contract insurance type stuff so I can ask her questions. When there's a question about really early childhood stuff that I don't remember as much, I go back to my mom because she was there and remembers all of it. So I think whether it's family or doctors or, or whatever, ha- having like a group of people and resources all together in, in one spot that you can go to whenever you're dealing with whatever you're dealing with. I think it's really helpful. I think it's important to point out because I think therapy and, and mental health is really important to our community, but it's not something to talk about. To be perfectly honest, we probably should have had therapists at NIH. Like it's a child with a chronic rare disease that nobody really understands everything that it entails. It is studied, but we don't know what impact it has. It impacts every cell in our body, including the ones up here. So we don't know what the full impact of this disease is in terms of mental health. It's in the cystinosis researcher community. It's not something that is commonly studied. They've really started doing that more now, but It's not something that initially our doctors really thought about because it was, especially me, I was diagnosed at 13 months, 1985 or whatever. Therapy is not on the forefront of people's mind. It's, oh, my doctors just maybe told uh, me that, you know, my kid is going to die at age 10. Let's focus on that not this child is going to make it into adulthood and then maybe have some issues with i know cystinosis patients that say they were traumatized specifically by things like going to nih and being studied i know that we all probably have a lot of medical trauma just for being a child with a chronic illness that nobody understands taking medication can be traumatic getting experimented on effectively can be very traumatic this is all trauma that we have just as a part of our existence it's part of our identity to have traumatic medical things happen to us. And if we don't have that network, because the parents and the caregivers, they're all, they've always been in a huge network of people talking. My parents have been on an email list, I think, since the 90s. Like, they've always had that. The patients have always kind of been on our own in terms of finding it. So finally now, I mean, it's internet's been out for 30 years. We're still just now going like, hey, maybe we should have groups where patients can talk to patients, you know? So I think it's finally becoming more something we will talk about, and that's really good, but I need to press the importance of people in the caregiver community and the doctors and, and provider community. They don't necessarily know how to handle the question of mental health and cystinosis because it's just not studied, you know? And I think it's important to note that that kind of attention that they give to say what it does to our kidneys, maybe not the same amount done to mental health, but that's an important thing to study and to think about for everyone, not just adult patients that feel like maybe they're a little messed up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like in post-transplant clinics or pre-transplant clinics, it's when you get into adulthood, having dedicated social workers or therapists who are maybe contracted and can kind of come in and out on certain days to meet with someone who's going through that would be like, yeah, that would be a great resource to have. But hopefully we can 
at least start talking about it in these kinds of platforms. And I, I think it is becoming a, a little more, I'm not sure if common is the right word, but a little bit more common to talk about mental health and, you know, like Bell Let's Talk days, like we're slowly getting there, but there's still many strides to take. I know a lot of individuals who are younger or even older who, you know, say things like, oh, I don't, I don't need to talk about it or I don't want to do that. But it's, I think it's associated with a little bit of, oh, not shame, but well, maybe embarrassment, maybe shame, maybe that is the right word. I, it's hard to say everyone's different, but the more we can kind of talk about it, hopefully the more it moves forward, right, in the discussions. But those are some good points, Kevin. I would not have, like, I'm 35 and I'm just now going to therapy. I, I think 10 years ago, I would have been so obsessed with being normal, which is a big part of my yeah. problem, that yeah. the idea of living a normal life meant I can't be like abnormal and that's kind of what people think about therapy and mental health issues is oh you're not normal and i'm like I live a normal life that is the goal of systemosis live a normal life and i'm like i don't even know what normal means anymore you know that's a made-up word that's just nonsense to me now so like who's really normal though come on right. no, 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 and i i feel uh in the in the cystinosis community well for me anyway that seeking out therapy can seem somewhat of a weakness like i feel that having cystinosis and dealing with your family dealing with you having cystinosis you have kind of this rock put on your shoulder where you have to act like you're fine just so that they're fine otherwise if you're not fine then they're not fine and it's like this big domino effect that if you don't act fine, then they're gonna, what's wrong? What can I do? They're gonna hover and, you know, not just listen, but kind of push in a direction you don't want to be pushed. Yeah. Well, yeah, like our family, our mom and dad anyway, when we were younger, they wanted us to feel like we were a normal child or a normal kid. And also we didn't really have internet or anything because it was just starting out when we were kids. We didn't really have a way to reach out to anybody with else who had cystinosis. So we were kind of by ourselves. We didn't really have anybody to reach out who was going through the same things we were. They wanted us to feel normal, so they didn't try reaching out to other people with cystinosis because they didn't want us to feel like we were different, but we knew we were different. We kind of, now looking back, we kind of wish they would have tried to reach out to more people like us so we wouldn't have felt so secluded, alone. Yeah, I hear you. I was that girl who was like, I don't have cystinosis. There's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, 16, around that age, I think. Um, well, who here, though, just in, in terms of conversation and a question, has heard or even said, oh, but I don't want to talk to them about that. I mean, I don't want to burden them with my problem. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard that one a lot. And I, I think finally in my 30s, <laughs> I realized, but you're not, right? Because I think about, well, how would I react to a friend who maybe has an illness, whatever it might be, a rare disease or not a rare disease? I don't think I'd ever, ever respond to them or even think for a second. I have too much on my plate. I can't talk to you. So I kind of really try to reverse the table a little bit, turn the table and, and think about that one because we need support. I mean, what are the, whether it's therapy or good friends, we need someone, right, to talk to. Just, yeah, I was just curious who here has heard that or said that before. <laughs> yeah, I certainly have. Oh, I, I don't want to burden them with my problems. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I have. Uh, uh, yep. Our next question is about medications, how you deal with the side effects and 
you know, the anxieties and stresses of remembering your medication, times to take it, how to talk to your doctor about side effects of medications. Anybody have any thoughts? I feel like you've got to be kind of not too fast to research all the side effects of the medication because it kind of, I think, plays with you in a way. And then when something happens, you'll be quicker to associate that to the side effect that you read that was among a hundred other side effects. So I think when it comes to understanding the side effects, I don't know how to describe it, not necessarily research too much into it as well. So yeah, that's, that's what I would say about that. Yeah, not to stress too much about the side effects. Take it, see what happens. Everybody's different. Yeah, because there's a lot. I mean, I feel like for each medication we have, since it's so specific, there's probably like 40 side effects. And so what can you do with that, really? Good point. The way they do side effects is they test people in the community, and there's, what, a couple hundred of us, maybe? So we don't even really know, and they don't know what the side effects are, because if you read that list of, like, just sustaining side effects, it's a lot. And just not to go back to mental health, but one of the possible side effects is depression. But when I asked, like, Dr. Gall about that, he's like, well, we have to put everything reported, basically by anyone with cystinosis, because we're all taking cystamine treatment to some degree, we have to report what side effects people have with cystinosis as a potential side effect. It's a cascading thing too. The side effects of cystamine are just massive. And then you take things like I take amlodipine for blood pressure. I take like all kinds of medications to deal with the side effects of the medications, which all have their own side effects. So it's okay. Now I take this because I take this. So I have to take this and my diet has to be like this. And I have to take that without food, but this with food. Okay. Let me schedule this out in my brain. Oh God, that's a lot. (laughs) So there are tips and tricks, like never leave home without medication in case you're out longer, set multiple alarms. There's a million tips that you could try to apply, but it's different for everyone. Some people, like I know Mac just takes his medication on time every time and has since he was like a little baddie, you know, and got, and that's great. I, I wish I was that good. <laughs> I wish I was so good at taking my medication that I could just will myself to do it, but I need reminders. I need like just reminders like a Rube Goldberg machine to go down and to hit my brain like, hey, idiot, like really actually get up and take your medicine now. Like, okay, yeah, I guess I will. Like, I need that that level of involvement in my reminder to take it, but that's not true for everyone. So my advice is kind of, like, very specific to my circumstances, and I feel like that's true in a lot of cases. Right, right. That's a good point. Sometimes I kind of think, like, we're talking about all the side effects from each med and medication, and then we're on numbers of medications. They all cause fatigue and, and diarrhea and drowsiness and nausea. I kind of just joke, and I think, man, I'm doing pretty freaking good, considering. <laughs> like, I'm feeling pretty good. I should be on the floor every day like but I work out I go to work I'm doing pretty good Joe what are your thoughts in terms of kind of medication side effects and managing things tips yeah well for me they're not really in side effects anymore they're just just my personality basically it's how I felt for 20 nearly 24 years so it's kind of just there that's who I am it's being tired all the time is who I am headaches who I am it's just it's just part of it you know yeah, that's a, a really good point, actually. Like, it's what you know, right? This is what you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, that's 
That's a super good point. Same thing here. I've been taking medication since I was 10. So essentially almost 30 years of my life or more than 30 years of my life. So yes, yeah, kind of what we know and we just go with it. And maybe I'll, for me, I'll pick up a few tips and tricks drinking the pineapple juice with, so I take Persisby. So mm -hmm. something acidic helps. Hey, I tried out yeah. what, you know, she said on this Facebook group and it, it's helping me. It's not any kind of medication advice mm -hmm. or anything, you know, that we're not doctors, but just trying pineapple juice with your Persisby yeah. and that helps. I think, yeah, like tips from other people who kind of lived it, understand it, know it, learned things. And yeah. then just like you say, it's what you know. It you is, kind of yeah. go about living your life. Yeah. <laughs> Don't let it stop. Carry on, yeah. No. Carry on, yeah. Keep going. Yeah, carry just carry on. on. Keep going, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anything else from anybody? I do think it's important to get away from things like the term compliant. I don't know about y'all. I hate that word. I hate the word compliance. We're not prisoners. We're just people trying to survive. What are we being compliant with? Ourselves? That's a bad term. It's used so frequently in the cystidosis community that every time I hear it, I'm like, it's automatically you framed taking medication as a punitive thing that we're punished with and we have to be compliant rather than like, this is just how we exist. You know, this is just something we have to do. Whether we're compliant or not is not the problem. It's whether or not we're capable and willing to do the work to survive in a healthy way. It's framing it as a compliance thing to me is just the wrong thing automatically. At least it was for me before I like went to therapy and they were like, well, what is compliance? I'm like, oh, I don't know, you're just taking your medication like you're supposed to. I'm like, that's not compliance, that's just living, you know? Yeah, I feel like that comes from the medical health system, from doctors, it's like on your file, compliant, not compliant, stamp. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> you do this every day. <laughs> Good yeah, point, guys. I think they need to kind of stray away from that word. All right. Any other thoughts on that? Um, another question. How do you discuss with your roommates or friends about your cystinosis or other needs you have? Depends like on if it's somebody I have never really met. But I try to be just pretty straightforward about it and, you know, maybe not use so much jargon, but just say I have this illness called cystinosis. And that's usually it. Sometimes they're curious and they ask questions, which I think is great. I like telling people because I think it's a little awkward to be taking so much medicine in front of somebody because I know they're curious and they want to ask me. And so I kind of let them ask me by just like mentioning it beforehand. So that's how, that's how I do it. That being said, I don't usually tell everybody. I tell people that I like it would matter. Like people maybe you trust. Yeah, that makes sense because it can be a little bit awkward if you're doing your routines and taking your medication and people are kind of like going on over there like yeah just people you trust or people that you can be open with and you share well, i don't know about you but me taking my medication is like a party trick <laughs> everyone's always impressed with how many medications i take so it's like my party trick that's what i do and everyone's like i can't even take one tablet so <laughs> so that's that's something that gets me noticed i like it it's funny <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> so true <laughs> Want to see these pills disappear? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> I literally used to try to impress people with how much water I would put in the cup. And I'd be like, all right, just this much. <laughs> 70 pills. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. 
I will say, when I was a kid, I never got the opportunity to explain it myself. I don't know about y'all, but from first through like fourth grade for me, every class that I had, if it was a bunch of new people, because I had to take so much medication, I had to have water breaks, the teacher would just get up in front of the class and be like, this is Kevin. He's weird and has lots of pills to take, so, you know, that's what that is. Anybody have any questions for Kevin? And I'm just like, I like dinosaurs. <laughs> you know? I don't know that that's the right way or the wrong way, but that was a weird experience for me as a kid to immediately be, this guy's the odd one out. This guy also smells funny. So like, we, we have to explain why he smells funny so that kids won't make fun of him. Let's do that yeah. in this, like public forum in the classroom setting. My, uh, that would be a good idea. My mom kind of used to do something similar, ex except it was usually after I'd been like made fun of in class by kids who were saying like I smell funny and stuff. So then she would do a similar thing where, where she would get up and uh, talk in front of the class and, and, and talk about it. I don't know if that's better or not to wait till you know there's actually a, an, an issue going on. But yeah, I don't know. I don't think there's any right answer really. <laughs> Yeah, like it kind of depends on on the individual. It depends on us because we're all so yeah. different. Like Kevin, your story, I'm kind of in my head thinking, okay, would I like love that because it just puts everything in the open, or would I hate that because it's like awkward and embarrassing? And I'm so on the fence with that. <laughs> But I mean, to a certain degree, it does just put it out there. This is it. Questions? I kind of am leaning more towards, yeah, I kind of like that. I had a teacher in grade seven who, before I arrived, explained to the class, I've gone through a transplant, a kidney transplant, I'm on medications, and kind of explained to the class. And at first I thought, that is so embarrassing, like grade seven. But that was one of the years where I really had next to no bullying. Like people weren't really bullying me at all about, you know, maybe a medication smell or, you know, I am very short. <laughs> like, so I would get bu bugged about my height, things like that. That was one of the years where I just had next to nothing and it was a lot more smooth. So perhaps that is kind of just putting it out there is a good way of doing it. But again, that like really, you say, that Steve. It really makes a lot more sense than first grade. You know, I, I was six. I hadn't really, I didn't really understand medication myself. I was just like, this is some, some BS I have to do that you don't have to do. Uh, makes me smell funny. I don't know. I, I didn't really talk to other people for a long time about having such a nosis. So another thing is my medication would be delivered to me in the cafeteria with everyone else. So there's no avoiding talking to people about it, at least for me in like elementary school through high school. You can't avoid it. You smell a little different and somebody has to say something maybe, because when I was a kid, it wasn't just a handful of pills. It was a syringe about this big of the grossest liquid imaginable. And I'm, I get, I'm getting a lot of nods. I'm assuming y'all remember the the, the polycitra, the bicitra oh. combined and the, like I had yes. to get it in a syringe yes. and shoot yeah. it down my throat. And that's a weird thing to see when you're also six and you don't know, maybe you take Ritalin, but this guy's got, you know, a seven inch long syringe full of orange stuff. That's weird. And then that's, that's part of like, I couldn't have a private place to do my medication. It was just, it's on the same tray as everyone else's Ritalin. <laughs> So it's like, here's your Ritalin, here's your Ritalin, Kevin, here's your, you know, 17 pills and your syringe and your other medication that counter the medication that you take after the food. Okay, have fun, children. <laughs> An interesting experience in the cafeteria. <clears throat> hmm. 
Yeah, I know I had a lunch bag with water bottles and then, yeah, like there would be my like medication, my pills or my syringes in there. I don't, I don't know about you, Ashley or Joe, but if you took or remember anything about liquids, because we actually had to take liquid form in the 80s. I was born in 83. So in my family, it was the Scholl's solution, like potassium. One was 7-Up, one was apple juice, and one was water. So we play little games sometimes in my family where we'd like hide them the real medications and then lay the, the other, like the fake apple juice water and seven up on the windowsill. And my brother and I would scheme up where, you know, my parents come home cause he's babysitting and they're like, Oh, Cheryl forgot her meds, you know? And then I'm like, I don't want to take them. And I throw them like down and they're like, Oh my God. <laughs> emails, just like apple juice. Like, <laughs> but, um, but did you ever experience liquid form, uh, Joe? Or Ashley? Um, yeah, I think I remember um, a green kind of um, liquid. I think it was really sour tasting, yeah, when I was younger, yeah. Yeah, and then I think it was horrible. I really hated it. <laughs> and then yeah. I remember, um, yeah, not long, I think, um, I don't know how old I was, but then the medication came into hand, so yeah. But I re- remember the green liquid <laughs> very vividly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember them as well. It was, it was yeah. horrific. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah, every yeah. every time me and Jana had to take it, they would have to actually do double doses because the first time we'd gag it because they're telling us you got to take it real quickly. Well, we don't want to swallow it because it tastes horrible. And so then we don't swallow it. Well, then they have a second syringe ready for us to take right after that one. So we have to take it no matter what. But every time it was a struggle to get us to take it because it just tasted so horrible. Yeah. So ultimately, I think, I think it really, this whole question kind of really depends on who you are in terms of the side effects and of medication and kind of how things, how we'd prefer things to kind of come out like naturally and telling people and really just depends on who you are and how you manage things and how your body reacts. Any final thoughts? Any other questions before we say our goodbyes? Any other questions you guys might have? Joe, Ashley, Kevin? Or thoughts. Yeah, or thoughts. I do remember one good piece of advice in terms of taking medication that I heard that I still haven't implemented. <laughs> but the idea is that you, when you take your medication, if you have a pet, a cat or a dog, you give your animal a treat when you take your medicine. And they will remind you <laughs> to do that on time. They have a much better internal clock and they really like treats. This is something that I read online. I was like, that's genius. I should do that. And I haven't yet, but I wanted that to be out there. That's a, that's a smart one right there. It's like conditioning your dog to remind you to take your meds. <laughs> exactly. Conditioning your or- dog to condition you. <laughs> well, yeah, they'll never forget when it's time for a treat. They will remind you. <laughs> that's an interesting little trick. I like it. Joe or Ashley, final thoughts or words of wisdom? (laughs) Yeah, I'm kind of out of things too. I mean, I think that honestly, the best thing to remember out of everything, especially when you're kind of transitioning into adulthood is, is one thing, like try to open up and try to find that safety group, people you trust that you open up to, whether it is a therapist or it is just family or friends, like don't go it alone, I guess. Ask questions, reach out and kind of try to try to find that support network that will help you through. Well, if uh, nobody has any other thoughts or tips or tricks, say this will, I'll stop the recording. And we want to thank you all for coming and for joining our podcast. 
because it does really mean a lot that you share your stories and opinions and just helping future generations. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. 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 Love hearing from you, so, you know, anytime you want to reach out, we're here. <laughs> Thanks, guys. We'll, talk <laughs> thank to you. we'll be in touch with all of you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stay safe and well. You too. Yeah. yeah. I guess. Bye. Bye. And now for our next guest, Serena Scott and her mom, Susan Scott. I'm Alan's wife. I've turned into Jeremy's mother, Melissa's mother. <laughs> I'm everybody's mother. <laughs> There's some really important issues about that with transition too, I think. Yeah. With the mum. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's exactly what we're, the questions are kind of geared towards, is transitioning. Uh, we didn't have any transition. Serena had no transition. She literally got dumped from the kids' hospital to the adult hospital, and her first experience of that was an ECG on her heart. They put her behind a screen, told her to take off her top and everything, and then and a guy walked around the corner to stick Ooh. all the things all over her boobies. I remember her sitting there like, what the heck is this? And so we had no transition. Wow, I'd be horrified too. Holy, just doing that to her right away. No mm. explanation. That's a, yeah, that's a very negative experience. <laughs> and, and literally he's going, it's okay, hon. I've seen it all before. Oh <laughs> and she said to me afterwards, he hasn't seen me before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You might have seen it all, but I don't do this. Like, <laughs> oh <goodness>. excuse me. <laughs> so Serena's 38. So this was when she was 18. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Yeah. And, and I think, too, when you're going to the same children's hospital from the age of 16 months to the age of 18, and you then walk into the hospital and the receptionist is like, hi, Serena. And the nurses are all, hi, Serena. And everybody's, hi, Serena, because they've, they've known you. They've seen you grow up. And all of a sudden, you're dumped in a new system where no one knows you. It, it was a big jump. Yeah. Huh? It can be daunting. It can be daunting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That would be quite daunting and miserable, you know, to mm. just end up with some somebody like that right off the bat. So what about you guys? Uh, well, did your doctor know about cystinosis or was it just pretty much just a general checkup when you transitioned? We don't have cystinosis doctors here. We have renal specialists who kind of mm -hmm. handle it all. And if they miss something, yeah, they just pass you from one to the other. There's no cohesion we yeah. found. Mm -hmm. That's unfortunate. Yeah. I think that, countries like yeah. and the USA and Canada maybe are getting more into gear of having clinic days, we've heard about, which I think would be marvellous. In fact, we had a doctor come out from the UK with a couple of his adult renal transplant patients, mm -hmm. nothing to do with cystinosis, but what they found in the UK was kids that have grown up with mum and dad doing everything, organising everything, then the kid moves out of homes, had a transplant, a great deal of them lost their transplants. So what they decided to do is have what they called a clinic day and they got all of the specialists involved with that disease together and all of the adult patients. And it wasn't even in a hospital, it was separate. So 
it was more a luncheon. Everybody socialised and played pool and, and then you just went off to your different blood tests and whatever. So all of the doctors were together and they also had a mentor who was their age that they could ring any time of the day or night if they had an issue. And they found that in X amount of years, they lost mm. one transplant. So it was working so well that this doctor and two of his patients were asked to come to Australia and to travel around all the major hospitals and explain what they were doing because they really found it worked. And I thought that was a really good idea. So all of us parents were kicked out and we all had a cuppa downstairs with the doctor and the two adult male patients sat around with all the adult kids and had a chat. Wow. wow. I feel like that would be very beneficial. Yeah, yeah, yeah it would. My experience was similar because I didn't really, it was sort of just going from one section of the hospital to the next section and it was similar where everyone says hi Cheryl and then you go and I knew nobody and mm -hmm. didn't know how to sort of advocate and ask the right questions at you know 17 18 19 and it wasn't really the best experience for me either I still had my mom coming with me to some of them until I was about 21 but it was not easy when you're 17 18 you've left high school you don't really still know how to advocate for yourself and, and properly ask the questions that you need to ask and so it was yeah it was definitely challenging for me in Canada yeah for me i had kind of a good situation i guess because uh my uh pediatric doctors kind of helped transition with my adult doctors to some extent that they would coordinate a little bit with my adult doctors and and uh, always be there to answer questions and uh, one of my pediatric doctors actually had cystinosis she was a, a big help and my mom she uh also she made a huge uh, binder full of my medical history if there was something i did, couldn't remember because it was before i had a memory and uh the doctors i had at, and, the, and then just like blood tests it was basically just like one giant organizational binders to keep all my medical stuff and she had been helping me transition somewhat since i was 12 or 13. so i i learned how to make make my meds when i was like 12 or 13. yeah so i went to uh right i still go to uh university of michigan and um it's it's been a really good system for me the, the guy who diagnosed me was uh dr taney and he's one of the experts of uh, cystinosis mm. yeah so i've been pretty lucky it makes a difference to have like doctors and specialists who know exactly what cystinosis is and what they're doing hey like as opposed yeah. to like oh yeah i i've heard of that i'm gonna have to do some research on that <laughs> yeah the doctor i have now when i got him he he didn't know anything about cystinosis but he's he, he's been a, one of those guys who's who's uh all about researching and and uh he's willing to learn he's uh he wants to be a partner with me. Excellent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, me and Jana, we, when we first started getting sick, we lived in a small town in North Dakota and they didn't really know what we had. They just knew we were getting sick a lot. Our bones were a little deformed or they thought, you know, we were vitamin D deficient or had some sort of side illness. And then they, at some point, they thought that we were being abused by our parents because we just kept going down in our, instead of going up in our growth. So finally, my, our mom, who her job is a lab technician. So she knew some of the labs so she could read some of the labs once they were done. And she figured out that there's, there's something else going on there. There's, you know, something else is wrong. And the doctors agreed 
and then they they um, said, well, you can either go to Denver or Minneapolis, Minnesota, because there's um, some very good doctors there that could figure out what's wrong with your girl. And they took us to the University of Minnesota, Fairview, which is in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and did some tests on us. Well, they did, they mainly did tests from what mom told me on, on me because Jana was sicker than me at that point. So they did the, the test on me and then once they, we met with the doctor, he said, well, there's one you, you don't want, we'll, we'll test for, but we hope you don't have it. And <laughs> we ended up mm-hmm. having it, that one that he didn't want us to have. And the one doctor who found it was, was a fellow at the start, wasn't he? Yeah. What's his name? Yeah, Wells, I believe, Dr. Wells. Uh, he found out what we had, and he started us on a, a medicine regimen, which wasn't even full, fully approved at the time. So it was more of we got into a study, and we allow, were allowed to take the medicine cystagon in liquid form at the time. There was no pill form. Um, so it wasn't the best taking medicine, but they had us taking it. And the doctor, he oh, he would babysit us sometimes because we were in Minneapolis <laughs> for so long periods of time. And funny story, he actually was babysitting us one night, and he had our parents had us on a strict diet of no water until we took our meds and ate, and ate mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so he's watching us, and he won't. <laughs> He won't give us any water and we're crying. We're like, we're like 18 months. Yeah, we're saying wawa. We're jumping up and down and we're crying and screaming. And they come home to him giving us water by the glass folks. Like he's just keeps giving us water and they're like, don't give us water, huh? Don't give them water. And he's like, well, they wouldn't stop crying for it. And he's like, yeah, okay. Well, imagine how we feel. Serena was similar. All of her meds were oral. She didn't have a peg. So she called it her yucky water. She had to have her yucky water before she was allowed to have her nice water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh. <coughs> so the, the parents today, in a way, a lot of them just go straight for the peg, which there, there's lots of advantages with growth and that. But yeah, the older generation, you guys, were used to everything was oral. Yeah. Yes, it was so gross. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Uh-huh. And you're all still here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I did have the G2 mm-hmm. for a little bit. Yeah, I had it until I was about 10. I did the oral too, but I wasn't good with the uh, liquid. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, it was awful. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, but eventually... When I was about six, I learned how to swallow pills. Yeah. And they eventually weaned me off the uh, the G two after I, I learned how to swallow pills. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's across the board with rare disease because my one of my cousin's daughters has um, another sort of it's called GA one, but it's another rare disease, and she takes medication like. 
And so I thought, oh, well, you know, it's, they say it tastes bad. Let's, let's put a front on and, and tell her, no, like, well, we'll try it. It's delicious. So I'm like, oh, I'll try that, you know? So I smell it. I thought, oh my God, it smells so bad. What is it going to taste like? So I'm like, oh, yummy, Aria, yummy. And I went to try some, just, I think it was a little like sip or spoonful, however she was eating it. And I just, I wanted so badly to spit it out. It was worse than the, the medications liquid form we took. And it was, oh, this is so, this is delicious. Like so fake. It was so horrible. I'm like, why do they have to lie? Why does it taste so bad? Why? Like it tastes like orange juice or yummy bubble gum. <laughs> I, it was so bad. <laughs> Well, just, just lately, because Serena has the NG tube now, we're getting all of her meds through that, which is a lot easier for swallowing. But my syringes, they didn't actually give me the right syringes. So a number of times in the last three months, I'm about to shoot the sister gone down it, and the whole thing has literally blown all over us. Oh, the other night. Uh, so I'm well aware of the smell now. I never used to smell it before. It's like... I'm sniffing myself. Yeah. <laughs> the, other night, the other night she was laying down and I laid down with her and I'm like, what's that? Oh, your pillow yeah. smells of sister gone. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's my dribble. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, look, look <laughs> Yeah, so she can't smell it. Yeah. Mm. Well, you kind of become uh, nose blind to it almost yeah. once yeah. you start taking it. Someone has to actually well, tell you what it smells like. I, I don't and, even smell it anymore. And people yeah. don't tell you. We've now got support workers and it's interesting because we've known these people from, you know, what, 15, 20 years? Mm. And um, I said something about the smell one day and one of the support workers said, oh, yeah, yeah, I, oh, some days it's really bad. And I'm like, well, why don't you tell me? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem to be certain times of the day where it's just strong, strong. Mm. Mm. And I actually had my old eye drops, um, cystamine bitrate or something they were. I take sister drops now, but the other ones, they were liquid. And I, okay, so I haven't had the liquid form of medication in 20 some odd years, but it was starting to drip down my cheek. And I went, oh yeah, wiping mm. off. And I'm like, oh my God, it was like a flashback because it smelled <laughs> just, the, the drops yeah. smelled just like the medication. Oh, they do. I do not miss that smell. <laughs> yeah, Serena's, on, Serena's on those drops. And sometimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can, yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. 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 like a little, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I've got yeah. <laughs> got it on my tongue before yeah it's gross <laughs> do you know we yeah. heard a story once of um one of the doctors in australia he got sister gone into australia he worked with jerry schneider mm. and he had two young boys in the same family that he put on the original sister gone we had to mix it with powder and whatever anyway mm. these children came into him and said we're, it's making us sick. So he ordered it, mixed it up, and in front of these children, he drank the Cystagon. And oh he ran over the basin and started <laughs> vomiting and vomiting. He was a very good doctor. Not many doctors would do that. And he, and he said, yeah, we've got to do something about this. Right. You know? <laughs> we do it. We take it all the time. <laughs> Oh. We were actually contacted by some people in the UK that have cystic fibrosis and they were doing a study of uh, starting those patients on Cystagon mm. and they were getting in touch with me asking tips of how to take it if the trial went ahead. 
um, because they'd heard it was really bad. So <laughs> I'm not sure what happened about that, but we were type of trying to give them info and telling them if they could get on the newer drug, they might be better off. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah. So that's interesting. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if it worked. Don't know. I know the cystic fibrosis people are on a new drug, but I don't know that it's cystagon. Interestingly, like with the transition, in the other side of Australia, Serena and I got invited by a renal doctor to go to a special conference on transition down in the city. And it was all, it was like the heart people congregated in one spot, and the kidney people, and we all separated into organs or diseases and whatever. <clears throat> and the whole conference was on transitioning all the different fields. So obviously other places in the world like you guys are doing it better than us. And since then, I have heard of a family at the other side of Australia where the kidney specialists went to the paediatric hospital and met the young person and he, they had like a double visit and they did that multiple times before the transition so that that doctor got to know the patient. I thought that was, that was it's working, obviously. Yeah, yeah. What resource do you wish you would have had? What do you think would have helped you out? At, well, at this conference we went to, Serena made a suggestion to the whole panel there and we had like the government officials and health officials and all sorts on the panel, she put the suggestion, why haven't you got a buddy system? I don't know if that's what you call it in other countries, but he didn't know what it was. And she said, well, when you start preschool over here, before you go to real school, the children a year ahead of you come to the preschool and they take you around. It isn't the teacher that does it, it's that it you get a buddy. And then when you transition from the primary school to the high school here, you're given a buddy. And that buddy shows you where the toilet is and where all the classrooms are and blah, blah, blah. So the parents could then step back and she said, you could employ or people could volunteer like myself at the hospitals when a new patient comes in, mum and dad may bring them in, mum and dad could sit and have a coffee. And then we take over. We can show them around the hospital. We can show them where they have to go for their blood test. So they would be transitioning with a buddy. And this guy looked at Serena like she'd slapped him in the face. He was like absolutely shocked. And he goes, what a brilliant idea. Five years from now, he's going to take that idea and make, make out it was his. That is a really good idea. But for transitioning, somebody just a bit older than you that had just yeah. come through the system knew where everything was and then mum and dad can kind of step back a bit and let someone else take over that would be a pretty good idea we don't do that in the states yeah, yeah. we don't do it in the, the u.s and probably a lot of preteens and teens would benefit from that do, do they have a system like that at your school uh, no it makes sense though doesn't it yeah. For people with a disability, like Serena hasn't been able to work because of her migraines and that mainly, um, it would actually, it would be good in the employment situation that they could have a little job, whether it was voluntary or paid, better to be paid, but even if it was voluntary and it was, um, you know, once a month or something and you had a little group of adults that were all, <coughs> you know, like one could take over if one couldn't make it. I, I just thought it was, yeah. it, she, she comes up with these really good ideas. Yeah, yes. it's a really good idea. It is yeah. a good idea. And I, I think that's an entrepreneurial role that needs to happen in, you know, all across North America, etc. Yeah. Where there's like a person who's gone through like an opportunity that's a job or a person who's gone through like us, rare disease, 
cystinosis, like whatever it might be, in the hospitals doing just that. Like that's mentoring young adults who are transitioning. You see, they could do it over, like if you were diabetic and you were going yeah. to the diabetic clinic or cystic fibrosis clinic or cystinosis, you know, like have people that have been through it and got through it. And even if they've had a rough time getting through it, that's even better in a way because they're more, they have the understanding. Yes. Like yeah, a rare disease that's advocacy cool. coordinator. That's the role yeah. title. You've <laughs> 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 got a title for the job. <laughs> but it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense to have someone that's been there <laughs> rather than just chucked into a system, um, have someone that's been there before you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there we go. Big idea of the whole podcast. <laughs> yeah. 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 Pose the questions, ask the questions. Here's what you need to know. Here's where to go. Like, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Great. And someone really to hold your hand, even if it's just for the first few visits, even if they kept it up. <laughs> yeah, you'd feel more confident. You'd feel like you were an adult taking responsibility for yourself. Yeah. Mum and dad were still there in the background. Because yeah. I, I think it's like with the whole transitioning thing from a parent point of view, We've fought uh, guts out for 18 years, keeping these kids alive. And all of a sudden, they're in the adult world. We can't just dump them because some kids we've noticed throughout the years want to pretend they don't have cystinosis. They don't want anyone to know. And we know one English girl, she's had three transplants and her workmates did not know she had cystinosis. She just needed time off for a little operation. I hope she doesn't hear this. Um. <laughs> But I was so shocked at that, that she didn't want anyone to know she was different. Whereas for us, we run a support group, so she's got no option. We're just out there, you know, which I think has been de detrimental in some ways. <laughs> that cystinosis is in your face 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know whether that has been 100% yeah. good. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so some don't want to know. They don't want other people to know. So the kid really doesn't learn much. They just let mum do it all, you know, like, because they don't really care much. And then you've got other kids that want to know it all and are, are able to transition a lot easier, if you like. Because I think it makes it really hard when you say, okay, mum and dad aren't allowed to go to appointments after I hit 18. Because some kids aren't in that position to be able to allow that to happen. And it puts pressure on that young person then to think, well, everyone else is doing it. They're 18 and mum and dad aren't coming with them. And yeah. then, then they don't ask the questions because mum and dad have been doing the whole show up till now. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, okay, your turn. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. It would definitely benefit someone to have like an older mentor in a way to have someone to reach out, even if it was about like drinking alcohol or something so they don't go absolutely you know off the wall and just do everything all at once because they haven't experienced it before and yeah. they want to try it yeah like get get advice from a peer who has who lived it responsible <laughs> lived it knows you know what works and what doesn't mm -hmm. good idea yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah serena that's a great idea <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should work on this. <laughs> but I think give you have full to credit. Work, you'd have to work with hospitals, wouldn't you, really? Or with your renal group? 
Yeah, yeah you have yeah. to approach the hospital or the renal doctor and then sell the idea to him and then, yeah, get him to okay with the hospital board. Mm-hmm. Find the dollars. Even if it wasn't paid, if it was a voluntary, yeah. a lot of hospitals yeah. do voluntary work, you know, the, the yep. tea trolley lady and there's a lot of volunteer work that go on. I don't understand why they wouldn't allow a volunteer advocacy person to help out especially if it means they're going to keep the transplants yeah yeah and a volunteer would be easier because then you don't you don't have to find the money i'm kind of half kidding but half serious <laughs> but you don't have to find, <laughs> well, money. You don't find the salary you benefits it's just it's a volunteer or multiple volunteer roles you could start it as a volunteer idea to see if it worked and then get feedback give back to the hospital and if they can then see that it's working, then they may do it as a, an employment job. Mm. Yeah. I think but it would like be a successful. Social, social worker kind of yeah. standpoint. Yeah. Mm. Mm. But oh, with well. in the title. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. If you had a little pool of cystinosis adults at the same hospital, see, we're a bit hard here because we don't have the patient numbers you guys have got a lot more than us but it, you know if you've got a whole group that all go to a similar hospital then i like that idea um but for instance in my, in, in my state we, we do have other people with cystinosis but we're spread yeah. apart yeah. really really far um and, and it, it's not a whole lot still like in, in, in uh michigan there's there's maybe three and yeah i think if we reached out to the rare disease community in general, because as a whole, people with, with rare diseases, there, there's there's a lot more of, of them to, together than just mm-hmm. people with cystinosis. Yeah, that's a good idea. You could be under the umbrella of, and you'd probably get more pool because they're more well known and they've got funding and whatever. So they could do all the liaison work, and you could just do the offering. Yeah. Yeah, good idea. Because we're the same. We they spread us out among every different hospital. I don't know if that's because of the price of the sister gone, and they don't want us all in one place. Mm-hmm. But it makes it harder because we're all spread out. Yeah. 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 Mm. Yep. They should put us all together. We're going to move to the US. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we've been, we've been told that if we would like that we should move to um, New Zealand if we'd like, because we can't get your new drug here, the Procispi. Oh, you can? No. Well, it's here, but the government won't pay for it. The, each individual hospital pays for it here. And yeah. so when you've got one drug that's worth X amount and another one that's worth 20 times more, you know, you can understand one, one over a million dollars to get the new drug. But New Zealand, we, we know that they can, they have got it there. It's tough because it's such an expensive drug. And like you yeah. say, there is another form out there that's much cheaper. Mm. It's been a lot of controversy, like... I think all over the world. Yeah. Well, look, Serena is just transitioning to a a new hospital because her original doctor from one hospital gave it to another hospital because the transplant was going down and now that can't happen. He doesn't really want her. So he's transitioning her to another hospital. So we've got three major hospitals in our city. And all of this was starting to go down a few months ago. I could t- tell he was wanted to get rid of us. And I said, no, no, because we get all our sister gone, our eye drops, our eye ointment from your hospital. We've got coronavirus going down. This is going to take some organising. So we're not doing it in the middle of a pandemic. And now they've pushed us to do it, like last week. 
And so we had our first appointment with the new doctor and I'm saying, you've got to organise all these drugs before we're shifting over. And he already knew about it and was going to organise it. But then I'm running out of eye drops. And so this week I rang our old hospital and went, have I got another script left for Serena? Because we need it on Friday. And they've already organised, they know how to ship it on dry ice. So I organised it. There was one more script left. And then I rang the new renal doctor and said, this is what we've done. You've got another month now. And he was actually really happy because he said, I've put it to the board. He said, but it's worth $23,000 for the year. And so they have to okay it. And I'm like, oh my goodness. They're thinking about not okaying Sistagon. Help. He said it should be no worries. But he has to, I didn't know, because it's a drug that's not under our PBS system, they have to actually approach the board of the hospital even to get Cystagon for a patient here because it's not kind of approved. And so they have to front the board and give all the reasons why this person has to be on this eye drop and this drug and this eye ointment and then get approval for it. So we have to then wait for them to get approval for us to be able to get it. And then we have to transition the pharmacists over so that they can explain to the new pharmacists what to do and how to prepare it. Oh boy. Wow. It's quite stressful because you literally, well, I've heard some of the American folks have their insurance companies say no to things and the poor parents are on the phone, like, or, or the adults, if they're not at home and that, on the phone for hours fighting with insurance companies just to be able to get the drugs they need. And it's, it's really hard. It's a lot of work and a lot of stress, like you said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, for prosesby, it takes, you need a letter from your doctor. You need to talk to the pharmacy who, you know, has the prosesby and then you need to go back and forth with them until they're agreed and okayed and, somebody agrees to pay for it because the drug is just so expensive. I mean, a million dollars for a year. (laughs) What insurance company wants to pay for that? Right. Which leads me into my next question. How do you deal with the stress, stresses and anxieties of the medications and the side effects? You've always taken your medicine. We've never, ever, ever had an issue with (laughs) Serena not taking her medication. We had more of an issue that she makes a lot of saliva and is always hocking up. And since she's had the nasal gastric tube, we found that the heart medicine she was on made her heart 10% better because I think it's getting straight into her tummy. So that's made a big difference. Even though she's always taken it, you know, whatever medicines we give her, she just swigs them back. It was getting harder to swallow and she was choking on them. Yeah, and we actually asked for permission to swap her from the one, what was it, 150 capsules of Cystagon down to the 250 down to like a smaller dose. And they wouldn't do it. They had to front the board. This is for the same drug, just in a smaller dose because you'd need double the amount. And they they wouldn't do it. So at the moment, I'm doing those stinking Cystagon capsules and mixing them with water and then syringing them in the nasal gastric tube. So it's all getting down. But yeah, it was, that was interesting. I don't know if any other patients have an issue with a huge amount of saliva, but that, that's been a big issue. Well, I know that recently for me, when I was on dialysis, they dialysized me wrong. So then I got fluid in my lungs and heart sort of thing. 
and they had to pump the fluid out of me. Well, ever since they did that, I always, when I lay flat at night, I always have like phlegm and, and saliva. I have to spit up for at least an hour at night before I can finally fall asleep. So mm-hmm. I've experienced stuff like that. You think it's due to the swallowing? Yeah. The swallowing, yeah. Yeah. See, Serena didn't get on to Sister Gone, really, until she was 18. Yeah. Whereas a lot of you guys in the US are kind of ahead of us. Some of you started it from when you were little. So we don't know the damage that's been done in those years before she actually got on it. And even then, we approached, we'd only just found the the American sites on the internet. That was all. We didn't even have a computer. And... We actually said to the kidney doctor, we think we've been talking to people around the world, we think she needs to be on this drug. And he went, oh, no, it stinks really bad. She won't like it. <laughs> so we said to her, here's, here's a doctor in the US. His name's Bill Gore. Um, <laughs> write to him, because this is how we had to put it across. Please just, just email him or ring him and just ask him what he thinks. And we knew what Bill was going to say, but yeah. we, he yeah. did. And... And he rang us up two days later and says, oh, your doctor girl says you really need to be on this drug. And we went, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and that's how she got on to Sister Gone. Well, thank gosh for him, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Cole. Yeah. He's a Jeez. great guy. Have you all met Bill? I've been going to the uh, NIH for, for, for a number, number of years mm-hmm. for various studies. Uh, yeah, so I, I've known him since I was in kindergarten maybe before that mm-hmm. so do you have any more questions there who's a person or persons that helped you through your transitioning from youth to adult Besides anybody mom. Yeah. <laughs> it's mainly the mums isn't it we were talking about this with some other parents that it's more the mums than the dads in most cases you know, some dads are really involved, but often it's the mums that, have, that do the, all the hospital visits and the doctor's visits and arranging meds and giving meds. And I don't know. What about you guys? Who did all yours? My, my mom was an ex-nurse, so <laughs> she, she was kind of kind of made to take care of, care of a uh, sick kid. <laughs> um, my, and my, my dad was an automotive engineer, so, so he didn't understand it as much. Um, oh, he could have made a he could have made a pipe and connected it. Through. He was a good emotional support for me and for, for her. He was always there, and she she knew how to do do stuff more and, and understood the the medical uh, jargon better than he did because she had had uh, been in that world before. Hmm. New girls. Yeah, our parents, uh, they kind of tag-teamed us because we kind of double-teamed them, yeah, in that department. So usually dad would take me and Sarah would have mom and they would sit in with our blood work and dad was usually, uh, he was our cab driver of sorts in the cities. (laughs) He would drive us around to maybe the Mall of America and places like that just to do something fun during checkups, just to make it more of a a fun kind of vacation thing. 
Yeah, he would, they both would come in and talk to the doctor, but mom would have a, a list of questions written down that she would ask the doctor and dad would be there joking around with the doctor and talking mm -hmm. about anything but medical because he, he gets uncomfortable talking about medical. He's more a sports guy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. With me, along with me as well, like mom was kind of number one, driving me to appointments and sort of taking her time off. Um, but dad, my dad did his own part in terms of just being that steady uh, financial provider. And then kind of a little bit like what you're saying, Sarah and Jenna, like a little bit more of a jokester. Um, but actually my brother, who is 11 years older than me, was a big influencer in my, in my um, childhood sort of medication routine because he would be the one to sort of say, um, like, okay, like play games almost with it and have fun with, with taking meds. So when he babysat, being much older than me, when he babysat me, he would, we would play games and fill up the liquid caps, like the little liquid um, caps that we would have all of our, the liquid medication lined up on the windowsill. So there was this fuzzy sulfate, potassium, whatever it was, the disgusting sustaining, but it was look like water, apple juice, and 7-Up. <laughs> so you'd just play games where, you know, they would be lined up on the on the windowsill. I would have taken my meds already, but the fake stuff was lined up and you know, they'd come home, my parents and, oh, Cheryl, you didn't take your medicine. And then mm -hmm. he would say like, oh crap, no, I forgot. Like, and then he'd just be like, just kidding. It's just seven up. <laughs> I took it. And just kind of be that funny guy, like in my life with my medication. Cause sometimes you just, you need humor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the whole family, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose that's another whole issue in itself with the, the it is a family condition like if you're at home you've got siblings mm -hmm. of all I remember the first conference we went to it's pretty overwhelming when you go to the conference and for the first time as a mum you see all these little blonde-haired kids running around from all over the world and uh, one particular talk given by I think it was a guy from Belgium or somewhere they had a system there where they had like a holiday resort and they have the whole family come there with all the specialists so all the siblings everyone can have fun and have like a little holiday go to the pool and whatever but it's actually they're going there for all their um, appointments really and I, t I actually ended up sitting next to him at lunch and I said to him you're the only doctor that made me cry from this whole conference because you're explaining something that would make our life so much easier and be so much better even for the kids, the siblings. I mean, you you girls have got two of you, so you both kind of, you can bounce things off of each other. You're going through similar stuff. But when you've got healthy siblings and one sibling that's not, that can be really hard because you can see what all your brother and sister can get up to, and you know, and then you're stuck home on dialysis. It's been pretty hard, hasn't it? You know, they're planning their trips to Bali and... It's like, okay, shut up. <laughs> like, <laughs> actually, we organised a holiday for Serena recently and dialysis is 15 minutes up the road um, in a town called Mandra. And it's like a, a holiday on the, on the coast. And um, so we said, no, we're going to have a holiday. So we hired a little um, unit in Mandra and we had three days holiday, but we had to do dialysis in between. But as we're in the dialysis room, uh, with all these old folk we're going hi see you guys we're going on holiday and they go where to we go mandra and they all burst out laughing it's like well we can't go very far yeah. when you're on dialysis and you have to keep going there three days a week 
you know, you can't go very far. So we were yeah. 20 minutes down the road on holiday, <laughs> but it was still a holiday. Yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah. I suppose the last question would be, what do you wish someone would have told you to do to help you out with your transitioning throughout your, you know, your adult life? Yeah. Tips, advice, like anything. That what do you, you would... wish you would have had? And can you type? No. Take your time too. Yeah. I would have liked to know ahead of time what I was going with though. What you're going to go through. Yeah. Yeah, like kind of the the journey ahead. (laughs) Yeah, I think if we all could kind of have a little bit of insight into what this would look like, almost like your buddy system idea. Like you had a buddy who went through everything like 10 years before you, but like was in your family. (laughs) <laughs> or your like best friend. I actually have two cousins on my dad's side. So my, my dad's sister uh, married someone who and was a carrier and they're both carriers, just like my parents. And they actually had two boys with cystinosis who passed away in the seventies from it. And I, I often think about them and I like, I have pictures of them in my wallets all the time, in my purse. I often think about them and think about a, I live for them and, and everything they're not able to do because they passed away when they were nine and 12. And also be like, I wish that I had them in my life to, to kind of help guide me through everything. Because like Serena, you say, you wish you had known what the journey was, you know, ahead. And I think that would be super helpful to, to you know, have your bad days, but then have someone say, yeah, I've, I've been there too. Like, this is what's helped me. Like all the time. <laughs> and because they, like when Serena was diagnosed at 18 months, they told us she wasn't going to live through childhood. So a lot of parents from this generation were told the same thing. And I, it almost had, like, it's a death sentence hanging over your head the whole, your whole life. You know, we've kept going and getting overseas and going to conferences and nothing's kind of stopped us. We just flowed with the hospital every time she got rushed in. But they nowadays, they don't tend to say that. But back then it was like, you know, take her home, enjoy the time it got left with her. They didn't tell me it was 38 years. You know, they made it. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. So it's, it's almost like that, that generation of older ones were not given a very big hope because of transplants were quite new then. Yeah. I mean, me and uh, Jana are 36. So we were kind of that generation where mom and dad were told we're going to live, they didn't give an exact year, but they were kind of skeptical the first time around our first doctor. Yeah. I was, I was supposed to live till, till 10 and I'm 32. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Same. I'm 36. So we celebrated 10 years, you know, Oh, that's great. You know, or, Oh, she's done high school. That's great. Or, Oh, she's going to university or what, what, like anything where the average person who had, who is healthy would think like okay well that's nice but (laughs) we celebrated like in our household because it's big strides like you know you made it past 10 you're in high school you're done high school that's great but that's what it is and they saw my cousins pass away at 9 and 12 and that's what they knew and that's what they thought and they grieved it and then I just kept flipping (laughs) so now I say okay well see what you know 20 years down the road brings <laughs> as far as the whole transitioning thing you may not think that doctors listen to you 
they listen to your mum and dad because your mum and dad are doing all the talking. We had a situation with Serena uh, under a neurologist. They were trying to help with her migraines and we were stuck in hospital for a month and they actually made her worse. But anyway, one day I said to her, look, get, we just got the iPad. Get on there and write down exactly what you're feeling, what, how you're feeling about this whole issue, what's going on. So they come around on their little ward rounds, you know, probably, I don't know, about eight or nine of them standing at the end of your bed with their little clipboards and the big boss ones there, you know, the situation. Yeah. And I said, I said, look, Serena's actually um, written on her iPad. She just wants to explain to you herself how she's feeling. So she had an essay. I'm not joking. This, this went on for like five minutes. And I just looked at the faces of these professionals. You know, I could sprout off and talk all I liked and I'm just the mum. They were... They were focused in on everything she was saying, even though she couldn't talk. She was using her iPad to speak for her. You could just see it blew them away because they were looking at her then, not listening to what mum said about her. So I think sometimes you have a lot more power if you can talk yourself to these doctors and really express yourself, even if you can't. Like she's always worried people can't understand her but even if you can use something like the ipad to express or even write down in a letter or do something they know it's then you talking and you're advocating for yourself yeah 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 absolutely because totally. yeah. no. the speech Definitely. is a big issue for some of the adults isn't it well I mean, you guys you because every time we get on any of these things she goes listen to their voices their voices are so good she's really conscious um, but then there are some that are having issues with speech. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that holds you back a little bit from advocating for yourself because you think people won't understand you. Mm. Yep. Whereas, yeah. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, if you could, if you're doing, yeah, you're telling me. me. Hey? me. Yeah, it's coming from you. Yeah. Right. We had one hospital, catch this, we had one hospital, we were in for migraines again, and... They were useless too. But anyway, the doctor gave us the... He wasn't a very... He was an idiot. Anyway, he gave us the discharge papers. And I'm reading the discharge papers. And on it, he had written, intellectually handicapped. And I went out to the front desk and all the nurses are looking horrified at me. And I went, can I speak to you for a minute? He's a young whippersnapper of a doctor. <clears throat> and I said, see this? What do you mean by that? And he looked at me and he, you could see he was starting to get really scared. And, and I went, my daughter has a brain as good as your brain. It's just her speech doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. she doesn't have an intellectual disability. She, she can understand you. And yeah. he goes, he said to me, would you like me to delete it from the records? <laughs> That's what he said. And Respond. I said to him, I said to him, that might be a really nice idea. And then I thought afterwards, maybe we should have left it there because she might have got more help. <laughs> <laughs> but that's but that's terrible. But, see that see it's like when people are in a wheelchair, sometimes people don't talk to the person in the wheelchair as a person that can understand. And I think when you have a speech issue, which a lot of the cystinosis adults uh, have they tend to think that you don't have a brain as well. Mm -hmm. So that's something the transitioning that the adult doctors need to know too, yeah. that yeah. there's issues there with speech, but they do understand what you're saying. You don't just have to talk to the parents, talk to the person and understand that they do understand a lot of what you're saying. Not all yeah. of it sometimes, but. Mm. Absolutely. Those are some wise words. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I feel like doctors, uh, and I don't want to paint a broad stroke because I think there are some really amazing doctors with great bedside manners and Dr. Paul Graham's just one of them. I think there are 
too many doctors out there who just almost see you as sort of a number and like the revolving drawer of next patient. And I get to a certain degree, you don't want to get too close to each patient, but there needs to be more empathy. Like mm. there's getting close to a patient and then there's just having empathy and a bedside manner. So mm. I think that there's really a need for more bedside manners and doctors who will listen or, or medical professionals who will listen and look at someone for who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Serena, you're not intellectually disabled. Like you are a smart individual and you pick up your iPad and you write with it. You have words to say. Yeah. 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 True. It is true. Yeah. We had a neurologist. We actually had a neurologist want to put Serena on a medication once and she had a transplant working at that time. And I said to them, is this going to affect her kidney transplant? And the, this is a top neurologist turned around and said, I don't care about her kidney. I'm a neurologist. Oh, what? Wow. This is what I mean. Like, <laughs> And you see, I, I, I didn't know what to say. For once, I was stumped. I was so shocked. And this is a top lady. Like, she's won awards and that. And that's what made me realise they're not looking at her as, a, as an individual. They're looking at her as a, a different organs, you know, the kidney organ or the head or the whatever. But they're not doing it as a whole person. And I think that's really bad because, mm-hmm. and this is, this is an issue too. Now she's got a heart and a kidney problem. They don't kind of, they're scared to give her any because they don't want to upset the other organ so that could be hard that can be really hard we we were ended up in emergency the other night with a migraine four days worth of nine out of ten pain with a migraine and they sent us home with paracetamol because he said i don't want to give you anything because it might make your heart worse Oh, and, yet, and yet we spoke to her old kidney doctor on dialysis yesterday and he goes, I've heard about a new migraine medication. And I went, yeah, I've done research, mother. And I said, it's got, it's got uh, guinea pig antibodies in it. And he looked at me and he goes, yes, that's correct. And I said, so for anyone going wanting a transplant in the future, having guinea pig antibodies floating around your body might not be a good idea. And he said the chance of her having a transplant is very slim. And he said, I'd go for the guinea pig antibodies. He goes, if it's got monkey antibodies, he goes, it's quite quality of life if you can find a drug that's going to help her migraines whether it's got guinea pigs or monkeys in it go for it and, I, and this guy has has been her kidney doctor previously for many years he d- diagnosed the first indian patients with the disease and i was actually a bit surprised at that but yeah quality of life is more important it freaked me out when i heard guinea pig antibodies to be honest well <laughs> antibodies no one's yeah that's one thing i have to worry about is is antibodies because after my transplant there was the appearance of antibodies it was my first transplant when i was uh, i was 2013 so my next transplant might there's a good possibility that it might not take you know they're keeping a close eye on it but you know you never really know because bodies make it really difficult to just keep it it could be because when i had my transplant they did do a transfusion while i was in our under and then i had another one uh outside after the transplant because uh it wasn't what they call it it went to sleep basically so they had to give me another transfusion which you know, ups the chances of antibodies in the system. Yeah, I don't like that word, period. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Antibodies. <laughs> Yeah, in my mind, you're a superstar, Serena. You first welcomed me to the group when I knew like two people with cystinosis from Canada. 
And I felt very welcomed by you. So keep up that group. That's awesome. It's, it's, it's awesome work that you're doing. Yes. You made that's me feel welcome. That's how me and Jana met everybody was we went to a conference and then we found your, your group and we started yeah. hearing and meeting more. Yeah. So I, keep it up. It's amazing. Yes. I was just going to say, I remember uh, being part of the email group that you started a long time ago, pre-Facebook. Uh, um, yeah. yeah, no, it was super cool. You do good work. <laughs> keep it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, keep it up. It's pretty blunt. Like, if you ask her something, you'll get whatever she thinks. <laughs> That's okay. That's good. That's, That's exactly <laughs> what we need. We would like to thank you again for listening and thank CRN for their support in creating the podcast. Stay tuned for our fourth episode on the realities of bullying within the cystinosis community.